So I'm going to read the whole passage. I may comment a little bit here through it, but I want to get the continuity of this text and have you see what it's about. It's a familiar passage to those of us who've been, been believers for a while. You're probably familiar with it. But uh, very powerful words in Genesis 22. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two, two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad for, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is in the, on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in, at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, 
Huz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. Huz and Buzz, good names. Kemuel, the father of Abram. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah, whose eight, these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Remua, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Makkah. So what does t- Genesis 22 speak about? And what does it have to say to us tonight uh, in 2022? Well, I see five main points in this passage, and I'm going to teach them in a sort of a way from, a, you know, just going through them topically and then coming back to the text. Um, and we can learn some lessons from these things, some great, great lessons from what is in Genesis 22. First of all, and the five points are this, if you're taking note, this is a serious test of faith. Secondly, it's a sacrificial act of worship. Thirdly, it's a significant act of obedience. Fourthly, it's a superb picture of the cross. And fifthly, there's a specific provision by God. So we have how this man, it reveals this man Abraham. It shows us a picture of him in an incredible light where he is seen to be one who, despite his outward circumstances, carries out an amazing task as requested by his father God. And, and we also see within here the depiction of the cross in the most powerful way, perhaps than any other way in all of scripture. So as we go through these categories, the first is, this is a serious testing of his faith. It says, now it came to pass after these things. By the way, parenthetically, it came to pass after these things. It's it's, it's really pointing to the fact that everything that went before him was preparing him for what was taking place now. It came came to pass after all these things. If all these things that Abraham lived through, and we'll talk about some of those tonight, and, and in talking and going through those things, it prepared Abraham for this moment, what has been called the Moriah moment, because he goes to Mount Moriah. And it foreshadows the Calvary moment. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. You know, when you're going to be tested and your name gets called, you want to kind of, you know, you might want to say, I'm not here. <laughs> but Abraham said, here I am. He answered the call. He answered the phone, so to speak. God tested him. And his test was, take your son, and notice he calls him your only son. We know Abraham had another son, but not a son of the promise. Remember that. We've been going through those things as we study Genesis. You look at how it's not the son of the promise. Abraham only had one son of the promise, and that was Isaac. And it was a miraculous child, remember, being born when he was 100 years old. And Sarah, being 90 years old. 
And he says, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Abraham, take the most precious one you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have this conversation, I don't know that I just say, okay, Lord, here we go, right? And if this is not the greatest test of faith in the Bible, I'm not sure what is. I guess you could put Job in here and kind of say he had some major tests. But this one is such a challenge. And it may be the hardest one that we see. But again, I want you to understand how God was preparing Abraham for this day. You can't come to a test like this without having been prepared. You can't respond the way Abraham responded without having been prepared by God. There was a work that God was doing in him, preparing him for this moment. And God doesn't test us so that we will fail, but that our faith will be revealed and strengthened. It's not a test he wants us to fail. Any test that comes your way, God doesn't want you to fail. But in fact, he wants you to prosper. And it's a test that he wants you to pass. In fact, guaranteed, if he brings a test your way, he's given you a way to pass the test. One of my pastor friends says he gives an open book test. James put it this way when it comes to testing. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials or testings. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, for let patience have its perfect work in you, that you may per- be perfect and complete, lacking no- nothing. He is working on us. Have you found that? And he's producing patience. Let patience have its work, James says. (laughs) Does patience work on you? (laughs) It's working on me pretty regularly. So down in the area where you are in Florida, the traffic is crazy. It's like it makes Route 9 look calm. And most of the people can't see very well (laughs) and it's it's super crowded like it's like they say it's just january february march so that's when we're down there right so it's but it's like and every traffic light is about 10 minutes long so i'm always at the traffic light i'm always like just praising the lord (laughs) my wife will tell you the truth Have you ever noticed recently, too, when it comes to patience, that, that nothing is working anymore? Like, you don't accomplish anything with one phone call anymore. Have you noticed that? Every piece of mail you get is, a, is some other reason you have to make another phone call or a text or an email. Nothing works. Patience, God says. Peter put it this way. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, 1 Peter 1, 6. <clears throat> Though now for a little while, if, you, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, salvation of your souls. Greatly rejoice, count it all joy. That's what you do, right? When a trial comes. See, genuine faith proven is proven through trials. And I've observed that people who go through trials and, and struggles in their faith, when their faith is genuine, when their faith is real, when, they've, when they're strong in their walk with the Lord, they come through the trial and, and, and they're okay. They're doing well. And they're being a witness within that trial. And I've seen the opposite with those who struggle in their faith. Abraham was a man who had great faith in God. He had great relationship with God. That's what Abraham's going through. He's called the friend of God. So he knew God as well as anyone else knew God in his day. And he trusted God. And God trusted him. You know that that's what happens when you grow in faith? You trust God and God actually trusts you. He begins to entrust you with things. He begins to give you things that you're like, wow, Lord, why'd you give me that? The Lord says, well, I'm testing you and seeing if you can handle it. And I want to bless you. As we read at the end of the passage, blessing, I will bless you. I will pour out from heaven. I'm going I'm to bless you with more than you can handle, Abe. Paul in Romans talking about trials and testings. He said, not only that, but we glory in tribulations. That's what you do, right? <laughs> Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Abraham saw perseverance producing hope within him, and he walked three days to sacrifice his son all the way knowing what was about to happen. But he had hope. He had hope in a God who had made promises to him. He had great hope that God would even raise Isaac from the dead. We know that according to Hebrews, he says that, that, God, that Abraham knew that God could raise him from the dead. He had promises that God had given him about a seed and about a future and about a descendants as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. He already had those promises. This chapter is a reiteration of those promises. And so if Isaac really dies, well, then the, the promises of God die with him, so that can't happen. I mean, he could happen, but he raised him from the dead so that he could carry it out. He'd been prepared by, prepared by God for this test. He was called from a pagan land, Ur of, of the Chaldeans. Abraham was an idol worshiper. And he was called by God, the God of the universe. And he was sent to the land of promise. But it was not to inherit the land of promise. Because he was looking for a country whose builder and maker was God. 
He was only a sojourner in the land. He was only a nomad in the land. He wasn't even a permanent fixture there. His promises were eternal. His promises were divine. His promises were pointing to the Savior. And God was refining him and preparing him for this Moriah moment, and he was testing him. He tested him when he gave, gave in to Sarah, even the, even the time when he sinned and gave in to Sarah's plan. Take my maidservant Hagar and have a child with her. We'll fulfill God's promise. We need to help God along. Poor God. He just, he just really needs our help. You never do that. You never said to God, well, God, let me help you along a little bit. I have a plan. <laughs> God says, uh, I have a plan. <laughs> His whole life was a test, and it was leading up to this. In our text, we see even here in verses 6 through, uh, through uh, 8, he says, he took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He's having a conversation with his son. His son says, Father, where's, where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Right then, Abraham's faith is being tested. But he doesn't waver in his faith. He says, he turns right to him. He says, but God will, God, my God will provide. It's a sacrifice. And in fact, what he's saying, the original wording is actually, my God, God will provide himself, not, but, not for himself or by himself. He will provide himself a sacrifice, the original language says. Himself. It's pointing to Christ. Imagine having this conversation, though, on a human element with your son while you're going to take him to the site of his execution. You're on the way, and his answer follows and showed that he's on his way passing the test. He's about to pass the test because he still has the faith. He still believes. When he's about to sacrifice Isaac, he's got him on the altar. He lays him out on that altar. He's got the knife. He's about to plunge the knife into his son. He's tested further there. What an incredible test of faith that was and how Abraham surrendered to God. He surrendered to God in taking him to the mountain, but he surrendered to God in that moment when God said, hold up. When the angel of the Lord stopped and said, wait. You see, our surrender to God is a moment-by-moment surrender to God. Because if we surrender and we forget and then we don't listen to the next word, the next word might be different from the last word and it might be telling us to go in a different direction than the last word was. If Abraham had stuck to his guns and said, no, you said sacrifice him, I'm going to do it, he would have had a bloody mess on his hands and he would have killed his son. But he heard the present word of the Lord. What's the Lord speaking to you right now? What have you been hearing from God these days? Do you know he wants to speak to you? He wants to speak to all of us. He's got things in his heart that he wants to tell us. If we're not listening for that present word, we'll miss it. He was tuned in, and God spoke clearly. 
And in this, God had proven that Abraham would pass the test. Abraham was his man. God could take Abraham now and put him up on that pedestal in front of people and say, this is my guy. This is the guy I appointed and I called. And remember, he's not without flaws. Any man that gets raised up by God, it doesn't mean they're perfect. Abraham had his flaws. We've, we've read about his flaws. She's my sister. <laughs> he did it twice. He didn't even learn the lesson the first time. We never hear anything about the conversation in the tent after that, by the way. But I'm sure it didn't go well for Abe. <laughs> Not only is this a great test of faith, but it is also a significant act of worship. I want you to look with me down here at verse five, where Abraham says to the young men that go with him, he said, he, he's leaving them at this point. He takes them partway up the mountain, and he leaves them to, to wait there. And he says, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship. You notice that word? I want you to see that that is the first time that this word is used in the Bible, worship. And, and the word really is a word that means substance or worthship or value. It's, 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 it's the idea of having substance to it. And it's that first mention, and, that, and you, you know, if you're a Bible student, you understand these things. The principle of first mention is an important principle in the word of God. The first time something is used, the first time something is mentioned is significant. So it's interesting that we see that the first mention of the word worship has nothing to do with music. Now, I'm not against music and worship and music, but my point is this. We sometimes relegate worship to music. We say, oh, I'm missing the worship. I got to here too late to, to hear the worship. Do you know that we're still worshiping right now? We're, we're, now we're worshiping in the word, right? That was the worship in, in music, and, and that's fine. That's good. But, but it's not about worshiping even in the word and in worship only, but it's actually the worship of your life. And that's what this is depicting is that Abraham was bringing himself to a place of a sacrificial life, a surrendered life, where he was saying, he, he, was, he was bringing his son, and the word actually means to bow down and to kiss. And so Abraham knew that what he was about to do was worship his God, and to bring his son was an act of the highest level of worship for him because he was giving up the most valuable thing in his life and knew he could trust God with it. Do you know that's what worship is? It's that willingness to just, Lord, I just give up. Everything in my life is yours. And, and I serve you and whatever you want me to do, I will do. Wherever you call me, Lord, I will go. Whatever you put on my heart, Lord, I'll worship you, Lord. And the other thing is he's doing this, and he says it to these young men, 
and he says it in front of his son, and then he acts it out in front of his son. So what he's doing is he's packing, passing on a legacy of worship. Can I say to you fathers how invaluable that is? That your sons and your daughters and your grandsons and your granddaughters would see you as a worshiper of God. That they would see that your life is dedicated to God. It's surrendered to God. That you're led by God in your life. And that you have... You are witnessing to them, and you're showing them the way. You're walking through worship, and they're walking with you. We tried our best to do that as parents. I'm sure we weren't perfect at it. But we tried to do that, to, 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 make, to bring that legacy into our family. And the families that worship together stay together, love each other, have a relationship. I believe that that's true. Now listen, there's always the renegade, right? There's always the prodigals. They go do their things. And you can't, you know, everyone has their own will and you can have a great family and worship God and live the life of worship and still have a crazy nutcase kid. <laughs> After all, God was perfect, Right? He had Adam and Eve, and they sinned. So the perfect father still couldn't control the human will. And if you've tried to control the human will of a child, you know what I mean. <laughs> Try to get that sin out of those kids, you know. Hasn't worked yet, has it? It's always amazing, you know, how the world, some people in the world be like, yeah, well, kids are not, they're not bad by nature. They learn it from their parents. Come work in our, wor in our nursery, will you please take a look? Spend five minutes. I was back there a while back, and I go in, I just walk in, there's a little boy and a little girl. A little boy's playing with something. A little girl comes over and grabs it from him. The little boy starts screaming. I'm like, welcome to church. <laughs> Worship the Lord. Parents, dads, moms, fathers, teach your kids to worship God. Worship with them in church. Bring them to church. This is why this closing down of the church is so bad. Because, be honest, really, does the average family genuinely worship on Sunday morning in front of the computer? I mean, you can do it, and we did it, but it's not easy, is it? I mean, the dirty dishes are calling, the coffee's brewing, you're smelling it, the bacon's cooking in the thing, you know. There's always something to do, something. But when you're here and you're in the sanctuary of God and you're, there's, I mean, you got nothing else, you can't, you got nothing else to do. Well, you can go on your phone if you want to be full. But worship in church, worship out of church. Show your kids what it's like to worship outside of church. Make everything about the Lord. When you take them on an excursion, talk about the Lord. Take, talk about the Lord in, in nature. This is what a Christian life is supposed to be like. Abraham, he's shown his son, look, I'm dedicated to God. And we were made for worship. Understand this. 
The human frame is made to worship, and you will worship something. So if it's not God, it's something else. There will be an idol that will take the place of God in your life. It can be self, it could be immorality, it could be money, it could be a person, it could be a hobby, it could be a job, a role in life, it could be any of those things and they will take the place of God in your life. Because every human being is made for worship. Abraham worshiped God and he's headed to a mountain that God told him to go to as an act of worship. And worship is included in our next point because worship is connected to this and that is it's a significant act of obedience. You understand that worshiping God isn't always rosy. It's not always great. Doing what God wants you to do is not always, does not always feel good. But it's an act of obedience. Obedience to your heavenly father, obedience to the leading of the spirit, obedience even to those who have been put over you in the Lord and you clearly know it. And yet they tell you something and you know it's right and you chafe against it and you go, I don't want to hear that. Or even when someone, a brother or a sister, not even over you in the Lord necessarily, and they come and they just exhort you. And they say something to you about your life, and you're like, I don't like them anymore. <laughs> you know? And you get in a car and you complain to your wife or your husband. Listen, God has used people in my life that I did not like. And they've told me things I didn't want to hear. And I remember one particular time, one, they, one man told me something I got, and I came home and I said to my wife, I don't need that church. I'm done with that place. Who's that little punk think he is? And then my wife, in her wonderful way, she said, well, why don't you pray about that? What? I don't need to pray about it. That's what I said then. But I prayed about it. And you know what? They were both right. (laughs) And God uses it. God breaks you. God will use people to break you in your life. And and we need to be broken. We need to come to that place of surrender. Abraham lived all these years, and he was a broken man. He was willing to do whatever God wanted. It's an act of obedience. God said, do it, and he did it. Notice the wording, verse 2. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and take him to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. And what does it say? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Doesn't say Abraham said, no, wait, 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 God. (laughs) Can we have a little negotiation here? How about I just hurt him and I don't sacrifice him? (laughs) How about I just break his leg? Can we we do that? I mean, that's going to be hard for me to do too, to break his leg. But how about we just break his leg and then you can heal his leg and we'll be good. No, he doesn't do that. Abraham had gotten to this point in his life, and he's probably somewhere between 115 and 140 years old at this point in his life, right? That's where he's at least 115 years old because Isaac 
Well, I computed it out. I don't remember how, but you trust me. <laughs> he was. And so when you get to be 115, you've learned a few things, <laughs> you know. You've learned to listen to God, I guess, in a, in a u- unique way. I would even say when you get to be 65. I, I like to say I'm, I'm 65, I'm middle-aged. <laughs> That's only if I live as long as Abraham. But he rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, he took two of his young men. There's a, there's a relationship between faith and works, isn't there? James talks about that in James chapter 2, where he clearly says faith without works is dead. And he actually quotes this and says, he talks about this very passage in verse 21 when he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works in that he offered his son upon the altar? Wasn't this work a justification of Abraham's faith? Now, Abraham wasn't saved by this work. He had already been saved years before, many years before, probably chapter 15 when he trusted God's promise. No, we're not saved by the works, but the works prove the faith that we have. We have a faith that works, right? So Abraham is obedient to God, and in his obedience, his works are proven out. You know, you can be someone who tells everybody you know Jesus, and you tell everybody about Jesus in 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 a sense, but then you don't live your life in a way that reveals the works of God. And so then you're, you're really, that's a hypocrite, right? So though you may have faith, you don't have works that are proving your faith. In fact, here's what he says in James. He says, do you see the faith that was working together with his works and by works was made perfect. The scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he's called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by his faith only. His obedience was so important in this because the obedience proved that he was worshiping God. And it was the passing of the test. We only pass the test that God brings our way when we are obedient to him, right? You can't pass the test in disobedience. Now the third thing that we see here is this text is a superb picture of the cross. And we actually did an entire study on this not long ago when we were doing the study through uh, the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament. Many of you were here for that on Sunday mornings. And you, you, and you see that it, it points to Calvary. And it really points to the hero of our story. And that hero is the hero of every Bible story. And it's the answer to every Bible question in Sunday school class. What's the answer? Yay! You guys passed the test. But this particular passage reveals also a significant picture of the father here. Abraham gathered his servants. He left for a journey. 
and, and, and they only went so far, and they left, they left them there at this place. And it, it's kind of a picture here of even Gethsemane as Jesus left his disciples in one place and went and spoke to the Father. And we often think of the cross and what Jesus went through, but what about what the Father went through? And even in the steps leading up to the cross, I mean, imagine when Jesus prayed that prayer and said, Father, if it be possible, would you take this cup from me? Could you just let this pass by me? Imagine the Father's heart and how much he would have desired to say, okay, let's figure out another way. I mean, you, you who are parents, you know, if your kid is hurting and asking you for something, it's very hard to not give them what they want, when, even when you know it's not good for them, right? You don't want to give it to them. I mean, you don't want to hurt them. You want to help them. But yet, the father knew that the son was going to go through excruciating, clearly exactly that word, excruciating, pain and suffering. And yet he said, no, we can't, we can't let this cup pass. And Jesus, of course, said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's a picture of Calvary. Here we have Abraham the father. He's willing to sacrifice his son. It's the same as our heavenly father who's willing to sacrifice Jesus Christ for you. By the way, do you guys realize how powerful the text is in John 3.16. We take it for granted how powerful that text is. The other day I was on the golf course playing with this man from Canada, a very loud, boisterous, overwhelming man. And on the golf course that doesn't always go well. But you know, we're striking up a little conversation and, and at one point, he said to me, so what do you fellas do? I was with another pastor. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. You're a pastor? I, said, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> what? I'm in trouble now. He's going to hit me with a golf club or something. And I, I said, yeah, yeah. I, I, have, I have so many questions for you. And I'm like, I'm on a golf course. <laughs> and my buddy was... He's a sort of quiet guy. He's like, man, I don't like that guy. <laughs> you know? This man's name was Richard. And I said, uh, well, so we started talking a little bit. And at one point, he said to me, well, I, I think I had a, a, a relationship. I think I saw an angel. And he describes the story. It was just one of those you know, bizarre, secular people's stories about angels. And this woman came to him and told him she cared about him, and he thought that was an angel. And, and he said, and that's, here's what he said, he said, because I was so amazed that she said she cared about me because I've always hated myself. Now, I've never met this man. I don't know this man. When somebody spills that out, there's really something going on, right? So we had a break at the next hole, and I went over to him, and I said, Richard, you know, you might hate yourself, but God loves you. And then I said, do you know the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, he will not perish and have everlasting life. 
And I said, God really loves you, Richard, and he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. If you'll submit your life to Jesus Christ, he will change your life. And you will no longer hate yourself. Now, he had been loud and boisterous and interrupted every single thing I tried to say up until that point. And you know, he looked at me and said, I can't even answer that. He said, I have to, I have to think about that. He said, that's very deep, he goes. We think of John 3.16 as academic. It's not academic, it's deep. It's very, very deep. Sadly, I didn't get a chance to talk to him again. He was supposed to meet me afterwards and he kind of disappeared. I think he was scared, I don't know. But man, pray for Richard. This poor guy is my age and just totally lost and broken. You know, when you tell a total stranger, I hate myself, you are a broken human being, right? Anyway, that was a side thing. I didn't even know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Do we really appreciate what the father experienced in giving the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ? That's where I was going with it. See, things would change for all eternity because of that decision. And Abraham, I think, understood it better than most. Better than us. As a father, I, I can't imagine God saying to me, take your son, your only son. I only have one son. I've got three daughters. But take any one of them and take them and sacrifice them to me. Or my grandsons. You know, I, I, remember, I remember, you know, my wife had told me a story about when we lost one of our kids in the, sto- in the store. You know, one of the kids roamed off and he couldn't find them for, even what it was, whether it was 10 minutes or 50, 20 minutes, whatever it might have been. It's, you talk about pain. If you've ever gone through that with one of your kids where they've just disappeared, or you've seen one of your kids go through pain through a, I remember when Mike had, had, had to have surgery on his nose. He broke his nose playing baseball and he had to have this rod stuck up in there. Ouch. <laughs> Ask him about it. He says it's the worst pain he ever felt in his life. I remember the doctor said, you look like a tough kid. I think I can do this without anesthetic. <laughs> yeah. Not, I mean, he gave him anesthetic, but he didn't put him out, you know. I can't imagine giving my son for you even. Let, let's just say, you know, you did something wrong. You committed a crime. I'm going to give my son for you. You go knock on another door. But you know, if you have experienced great pain and loss in your own life, you know what this is a little bit. And as Abraham traveled up that path, out by Mount Moriah, every step must have been agony. And understand that as Jesus walked the Via Della Rosa, every step from the Father's point of view must have also been agony. Every step. The way of suffering. Our father had only one son and he gave him for us. 
God so loved the world. We understate the pain and loss by the Father, and this story illustrates that for us. Now, we also see it from the aspect of Isaac the son, because Isaac, first we see he carries the wood for the sacrifice, much like Jesus carried the cross. Isaac bore the wood on his back. He questioned his father, just like we mentioned about the Garden of Gethsemane. He questioned, where is the sacrifice? Jesus asked the cup would be taken away. And the other thing that's interesting is because Isaac was at least a teenager by this time, could have been 25 to 30 years old, he certainly could have over, overpowered a 115-year-old man. In other words, he didn't have to go, but he went. Because the father said, this is what we're doing. And we know that Jesus himself submitted himself to the cross. He, he said, no man takes my life from me, but I give it of my own volition. No one takes it from me, I lay it down of myself, he said in John chapter 10. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. This is the command I received from my father. And Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb? He's searching for an answer. Where is the lamb? Remember, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he pointed and he said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Incredible picture of the cross. And we could spend the whole time on that, but we're not going to. The last point tonight is that this text gives us a specific provision by God. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. We see that he says, God will provide. He asks him, where is the lamb? And he says, God will provide himself a lamb. It's a very specific provision. It's a provision for what was needed for the moment and for eternity. God provides all that we need, but listen, not all our greeds. God is our provider, and the first thing he provides, the most foremost thing he provides, the most important thing he provides for us is salvation in Jesus Christ, amen? And if tonight, perchance, you're here in this sanctuary and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've not yet come to Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the provision has been made for you. You cannot pay your way to get to heaven. You cannot be good enough. You cannot clean up your act. Some of you will say, well, I, 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 you know, I need to get better, and then I'll come to the Lord. If I, just would, you know, if I just stop doing these certain things, then I'll come to the Lord. No, the Lord catches the fish, then he cleans them. And you're a fish that needs to be saved. And I'm a fisher of men. So give your life to Jesus tonight. He died for your sin. He rose from the dead. 
Abraham doesn't hesitate when Isaac questions, where is the lamb? He gives the answer right away because he trusted God and he knew him as his provider. God had provided for Abraham and he knew he would provide again. Jehovah Jireh. By the way, tonight, if you're hurting about something and you need some kind of provision, and sometimes, I don't know about you, I'm like this sometimes. When I need something, my first thing is, I gotta figure out how to get this transferred over here and figure this and move this this way, and then we'll get to, God says, I'll provide. The Philippians were in need, and Paul told the Philippians, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Again, remember, it's all your needs, not all your greeds. Your needs. What do you need tonight? Do you need healing? Do you need a special touch from the Lord? Do you need to, you need to sense his presence in your life? Do you have financial need? Do you need a job? You've been praying for a job? Praying for a new job? Need a new boss, just like the old boss? <laughs> Our God is a great provider. But I, find, I, I do notice sometimes some people who are in need come to church. They come to church in need because, well, maybe the church will help me financially. Maybe the church will, maybe if I go to church, God will be impressed with me and then he'll bless me. You know, maybe if I go to church, my girlfriend will come back to me or my boyfriend will come back to me. Maybe if I go to church, you know, I'll hit the lottery. Even though that's gambling, it's okay. God will... If I win, it's not gambling. <laughs> and all these things that maybe if I do this, maybe I do that, God will, God will do this. And they put contingency. But let me just say, the thing you need provided for you most is the relationship with the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Believe not, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He'll guide you into truth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Live your life for the Lord and God will take care of the rest. And you know what's the worst thing is he doesn't provide for us physically. We get sick. We don't have any money. We starve to death. We die. We go to heaven. That's the worst thing. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm reading these things. Every day now I get this email or this um, Facebook message, 838. I've been sending it out. Some of you have been responding to it. It's, and it's about persecuted brothers and sisters all throughout the world. And it breaks my heart that they're going through that. But every time I hear that one of them died, I'm like, ah. I'm like, oh. And I'm like, ah. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's that mixed thing. Like you're sad in the sense that the persecution, but at the same time, they're at, they're, they won the game. They hit the lottery, the good lottery, and you didn't have to buy a ticket. All you had to do is receive the ticket that's been punched for you already. God will provide himself a ram. 
And he has. And he's provided it for you and for me. I'm so glad I'm saved. I'm so glad I know Jesus. Aren't you? You can give a better amen to that. Okay, thank you. So, this is a serious test of faith. This is a sacrificial act of worship. This is a superb picture of the cross. And this is a specific provision by God. Oh, and I missed, this is a significant act of obedience. God is good, isn't he? He gave us this picture, and greater still than the picture he gave us here in Genesis is he gave us the real thing. Jesus Christ going to the cross. Let's pray. Father, I, I am so grateful for your word tonight, for this passage and the incredible faith that you, you instilled into the life of this man Abraham and how you brought him to this place, Lord, of yieldedness and submission, surrender to you. Lord, may we be as surrendered. May our lives be yielded unto you. And Lord, we're thankful. We're so thankful for the cross of Calvary. We're so thankful that, Jesus, you laid your life down for us, for me, Lord. Father, we're so thankful that you sent your son. And Lord, would you just continue to do a work in those of us who know you Deepen our faith in you. Help us in our weakness. And Lord, for some who need provision tonight, provision of healing, provision of finances, provision of job, provision of healing and relationships, provision of forgiveness, may we know what great a provider you are. And Lord, I, I pray tonight if there is anyone with us who's not come to faith in the one who gave his life, that tonight would be a turning point in their life, that they would turn to you and be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And those are powerful words. The message is powerful. We pray for that man, Richard, right now, tonight. We pray that he would turn to you, that you would bring Christians around him. But Lord, for those who are here in my voice tonight, whether it be here or online listening, that they would turn, Lord, and be saved. And if tonight you're, you're here and maybe somebody brought you or you, whatever reason that you're here, God has touched your life and you know it, 
you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you believe that he loves you and he died on that cross for your sin and rose again from the dead, you can be saved tonight. And if that's you and you're listening online, you can be saved right where you are. All you need to do is pray this simple prayer with me and mean it from your heart. Just say these words. Say, Dear Lord, I'm lost without you. Would you touch my life and save me? I believe that you died on that cross for my sin and rose from the dead on the third day. I believe that you gave your life for me. And I turn away from my sin tonight and I turn to you and invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and my Master and my Savior. I thank you for loving me. I put my trust in you now. Is there anybody tonight who would say, this is the first time that I really have come to faith in Christ? And if that's you, would you just slip your hand up? Is there anybody tonight that would say, yeah, tonight's the first night for me. I did. I finally see it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't worry about anybody else. Just trust in him. I can't really see very well, so if you're raising your hand, wave at me. <laughs> Is there anybody at all? The Lord knows every heart in here. If you prayed that prayer, or if you need prayer for anything, we have the elders will be here in the front of the church. People will be here to pray with you. There will be somebody in the prayer room, and, uh, and we'll be glad to help you out. Let's stand together and, and just worship the Lord. May the Lord bless you. Great to be with you. Good to see you, and I'll see you Sunday. I'll be around for a little while.